if you are struggling with this and you're dealing with shame, I want you to know that nothing you can do, you cannot do anything to change the way that Jesus Christ loves you and his desire for you. Um, you have infinite worth and infinite value because he gave an infinite price for you. And so let's get to work on this and let's get you healed so you can love him the same. Welcome to Calvary Life, a podcast designed for the members of Calvary Baptist Church, where we talk about issues of importance as a church family, issues relating to your walk with Christ, your family, and your relationship with the world. Of course, it's not just for us. It's for anybody in this community or anybody that this would serve, really helping believers be faithful to King Jesus. I'm Paul Thompson. I'm Charles Uptang. I'm Ian Morrill. And we're glad to have Ian today as our special guest. We're going to talk about something that is really important to all of us. And Ian has taken on a leadership role in this area, and we'll get to that in just a second. But before we do, I want to just jump right in, I mean, just right into the topic by sharing some information. Now, this is statistical information, so I want you to, to just tune in for a minute. I know sometimes you check out and you hear stats being given to you. The the description of this information I'm about to give you comes from a survey that is described as the most comprehensive meta-study on pornography statistics ever made. It's a complete mapping of the most objective and factually accurate statistics on pornographic use, prevalence, addiction, demographic differences, etc., and much more. So this is a serious study, and it's recent. So the numbers I'm going to give you are pretty close to accurate as far as we know them. So get ready to be, I hope, shocked. I, I hope that you're going to be shocked over what you hear. 46 million U.S. adults watch pornography frequently online, frequently. Almost 70 76% of Americans, that's 75.8%, have at one point watched porn online. One in four watched porn online this month. 93% of boys, and this one might even be low, are exposed to porn in some form before they turn 18. Um, one in three men and one in five women have watched porn due to peer pressure because they have friends that watch it. 10% um, of Americans, 10%, show signs of porn addiction. 87%, catch this one now, 87% of men between 18 and 35 report to watch porn on a weekly basis. 87%. Now, if you're listening to that, you might be thinking, man, this world is messed up. And you would be right. But this would be a myth. If you think those numbers only affect people who are so-called out there, a them problem, not an us problem, not an in-the-church problem, an outside-the-church problem, you'd be wrong. Ian, speak to some of the, the numbers and some of the data of what's happening, not just out there. I'm not here to just stand on the soapbox and point fingers at the world, but what's happening in the church in this area? Uh, yeah, it's it's a huge problem in the church. Um, I have some statistics here, and these are from 2013. I'm not sure what what year yours comes from, um, but they, these were as of 2013. And so, bringing this a little closer to home, 60 to 70 percent of men in the evangelical church admit to visiting a pornographic site on a regular basis. And by the way, you'll say you'll hear me say the word pornography. I think porn has become such an accepted term, it kind of takes the sting out of it, so I like to give it as much weight as we can. 
um, 20 to 30 percent of women in the church um, are using pornography on a regular basis. And this, again, this was uh, 2013. Uh, 50 to 58 percent of pastors, you know, that one might come as a shock. Um, but, you know, they're, they're human as well, and they're under a great deal of stress. And, you know, sexual addiction is not about sex. It's about how you cope with life. And so no one's really immune to it. And the, the really scary part is only about 9% of churches have a program in place to really deal with this. And when you talk about prevalence inside the church, I read an interesting article. This one's a little bit more recent. But, again, my, my assumption is these numbers are probably only get, getting worse. So the older the data, the probably more optimistic it actually is. But this was from an article from 2020 uh, from Relevant Magazine. And Relevant Magazine did a, or noted a study by an organization called the Freedom Fight. Now, I'm not familiar with this organization. I'm not endorsing. I'm just giving you the data. So the Freedom Fight conducted a survey of more than 1,300 practicing Christian college students, okay, from over 30 different campuses across the country. And this is what they found. The men and women we surveyed were involved in campus ministry, and they considered their faith in Christ to be very important to them. Many of them were leaders in their ministries. What we have found was alarming. 89% of the Christian men surveyed watch porn at least occasionally, 61% weekly, 24% daily or multiple times a day, and 51% of these said they were addicted. Those are your future Christian leaders, husbands, and fathers. So I think we can see pretty clearly it's not just a them problem. This is an us problem. And Ian, you'd mentioned a couple of stats in there just a moment ago. This is not just a guy problem. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so like I said, the 20 to 30% was in 2013. But another statistic here is that viewership of what we would call female-friendly pornography, if a woman was going to go online and search for something that aroused her, uh, between the years of 2013 and 2017, that viewership rose 1,400% in four years. So if you take that into consideration with the 20 to 30% of 2013, I think we can see that those numbers are completely bogus as of today. I mean, we're talking 10 years ago. On this comprehensive site that I was quoting earlier, which I think the date on that was 2022, actually, their numbers said this. This one to me, this was probably the most shocking one for me, surprising, I'll say at least. One out of every three visitors to porn sites are women. And then they noted also women are much more likely than men to read written porn or listen to erotica and much more likely to visit porn chat rooms, discussion groups, that sort of thing. So big question first for anybody who might be listening. I'm not assuming you're a Calvary person or even a Christian. Just if, as you're listening to these things today, maybe somebody shared this with you. Big question first. Ian, why... Why is this a big deal? I mean, some of the stats, I think, would probably suggest this at the very least. There's a shifting sense of morality on this issue in our culture, right? We were talking a moment ago before we started recording, are there any words we shouldn't say? And, you know, of course, we're trying to keep this family friendly, and so we'll, we'll be careful with what we say as, as we would in any decent conversation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, I know that if you turn on your TV tonight to a network and you watch a sitcom, you're going to hear words that we're not going to say here even. It's so mainstream now. Um, it's joked about, and almost it almost seems to be assumed that it's just going to be normal. Guys are going to do it, and now 
as we're seeing the numbers. Women are doing it more and more and more. So this is just normal. This is part of our culture. And the majority of people probably, I'm going to assume, don't see a big deal with it. And so, Ian, where would you start with this? I know this is a big subject and would require more than just a short podcast and answer, but where would you start with the question of why do you guys care about this? Why are you being so puritanical about this? This is personal and private. I'm not hurting anybody. This is my own business. Why, why should we care? Well, I think we have to go back to the Genesis chapter 1 for the root of this. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, uh, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so what you have, the only place on the planet that you have a clear image of God displayed is the covenant relationship between a man and a woman, um, between a husband and a wife. And so the enemy is going to do anything he possibly can to mar that image. Um, And so when we get into these areas of sexuality outside of the marriage bed, we end up completely wrecking how God designed us to be relational with each other. Um, You know, to give you an example, the way God created this whole relationship between a man and a woman to work goes something like this. It's, and this is very simplified because the way the mind works is very complex. Um, The way God created us is so complex. I don't want anybody out there who's a psychologist or a therapist go, no, we kind of, you left out a few parts. Yeah, if we got into the nuts and bolts of it, it would take a very, very long time. But a man and a woman in a covenant relationship come together in the most intimate context known to man. You know, this is face-to-face. This is skin-to-skin. You know, this is a man and a woman coming together in intimate union. And by the way, there's only a couple of primate species that mate like this. Otherwise, it's just humans. We are created to connect on this level. And so... When a man and a woman comes together in this context, the brain lights up like a Christmas tree or like the, you know, like the fireworks on a uh, Fourth of July night, and the brain just mixes, it, it releases this mixture of chemicals. There's like dopamine, there's vasopressin, there's oxytocin, and all these together are several times more powerful than a shot of morphine. It's quite amazing. Would you say in general, you know, if we're looking at this kind of in general terms, okay, there's Obviously, gender and sex is by God's design. Human sexuality is by God's design. It's a good design. God, is a, God gave it for good. And as a result of that, I mean, we would rightly say that this issue is really not just physical, not just moral. It's spiritual, that we have a spiritual enemy that's warring against God's good design. Um, destruction of your self-image, destruction of your relationships, your capacity to relate. Um, how, how would the spiritual aspect of that side kind of play into this? Well, I mean, if you go back to the image of God here, you know, the clear picture we have of the unity of the Trinity is the man and the woman becoming one flesh. Um, There is a spiritual connection there. Uh, The brain bonds that person to the other person. There's a chemical release called oxytocin. This is the same chemical that's released when a mother has a child and they lay the child on her inner bosom, skin to skin. She physically bonds with that. There are are neurological pathways that form. And so this is how we were meant to relate with each other, and this is a reflection of what we have to look forward to um, in the new creation when we are 
united with one in Christ or with Christ in the Father. You know, Jesus prays about that in the high priestly prayer, John 17. You know, he says, I and you, you and me, that we may become perfectly one. And so this is a reflection of that here. And when we go outside of those bounds, we are really wrecking what God created as a beautiful thing to point to him. If we start on this loftiest plane, which we rightly should, and this is our basis. Our basis is exactly where we began. God's good design and creation, God's plan and purpose for his people to, to thrive, God's gift of family and all those things. Ian, um, for a moment, in, in terms that we, can, that we can put out here on the air, um, let's talk just a minute about what's the practical cost of violating this design? What are we losing here in this? Like, you know, what are some things that we're seeing in, like if I'm talking to a young man and I'm talking to a teenage boy already who's been exposed, statistically speaking, the average young man is exposed to porn by the age of 14. And I think, again, that's probably generous. And so he's already been exposed. It's commonplace at school. And they're, they're sharing images and they're sharing sites and things like that. There are video games that are explicitly uh, erotic. Okay, so already he's getting sucked into this. So let's talk just a minute about what are some of the practical effects of that. What's he losing here? Well, ultimately he's bonding with an image on a screen. And so relationships after that, um, they're all going to be compared to that first experience. And so we're missing that connection. Uh, on a physical level, you're doing damage to your own body. I mean, you don't have to go far around town to see signs for, you know, men's clinic treating ED. And, you know, there are statistics out there that show that we have 15 to 17-year-old young men out there suffering from this because of prolific use of pornography. And so when you carry that into a marriage relationship, uh, you're absolutely going to wreck it. You know, you use a phrase um, which is repeated in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, foundationally it's in Genesis, God's design for family and marriage, that the two shall leave father and mother and become one flesh. Jesus repeats that. It's his first mention of marriage, and then we see Paul repeating it as the clearly the eternal standard that God has given, the one flesh union. Uh, I just did a wedding Saturday, for instance, and so I use this term intimacy. We typically think of intimacy as, well, that's just a physical relationship. And I describe this for this couple as no barriers between us. This is this, this mental connection we have, this emotional connection we have, this spiritual connection that we have, and it's embodied in this, in this physical connection. I really, man, I just really fear, I really fear for this generation that's grown up with a normalcy of pornography, that um, I really fear for their ability to function in healthy marriage relationships moving forward. Um, I know that's not the end-all be-all as... as as Christians here, we're not simply saying, hey, this is going to make your sex life more difficult, or this is going to make marriage harder. Ultimately, it's it's about God's design and God's intention and what God wills for you. But on a very functional level, I really fear, I really fear for this generation moving forward and how that's going to have just a profound effect in every way. I think we're already seeing some of that. You know, um, the young people and the younger generations committing to a, a marriage covenant, the numbers are going down. Uh, they're wanting to stay single and, so, quote, unquote, have their options available. Um, 
And, you know, it's not just the men. The women are very prone to this, too. You know, when you have a sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant and then you break up and that doesn't work, well, again, she's bonded to this man, and she can very fall into something that's called a love addiction where she doesn't have enough time of uh, abstinence where that she had to goes through a healing process. And so, therefore, she is chasing that high that she once had, and it's relationship after relationship. And what's really scary is when children become involved, now you have this broken home. And we see in Scripture where, where um, sin is visited on the third and fourth generations. It's not God doing this. It's we who are doing it. We're passing on this brokenness to our children. And here's a really, really scary thing. There's new research to show that um, the way genes are expressed in an addict, it actually changes the structure of the DNA, and that can be passed on to the child. So if I'm reading this correctly, you could possibly pass on the uh, likelihood of having an addiction. You're a little bit past my pay grade on that one. but I'm past my own pay grade on this one, too. I just do a lot of reading. I will say this, it's say, from my perspective, my seat. So as, as a pastor and someone teaching and everything, in general, and I'm speaking in broad generalities here, we're going to, we're going to make it clear that this is what God designed and what God designed is good. Deviations from God's design are sin. They're sinful. Sin not only harms us, it affects our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with others. And so in general, and, and I'm setting something up here, so in general what we would say, we're talking about sin in general, whatever that sin might be, whatever we would say, this is what God commands, but this is what you've done, the right response to sin would be, and we would know the, we would know the Sunday school word, right? It's, it's repent. So uh, I think of that old, I'm going to age myself here, I'm not quite a boomer, but I think of that old uh, um, Bob Newhart show, you know, Bob's playing, Bob's a psychiatrist, and someone comes in, you know, this is, this is, I think it was a Saturday Night Live skit, but comes in with all their problems, and he keeps telling them the same words, just stop it, just stop it. <laughs> okay, so we might say that for someone who's doing certain things, and just tell them, look, just repent, just stop. Okay, Ian, tell me why that, that may not be enough to simply point out that this, this is what God designed, this is what you're doing, this is diminishing God's image in you. This is diminishing God's purpose and plans in your life. This is, this is violating um, God's law, so you have the judgment of God for this. This is affecting you personally, but people don't find it just so easy to stop. Why, why is that? Why is it so difficult to overcome? Why well, is this different? Well, it comes, down to, uh, it comes down to the brain, actually. This is a war that's fought inside the mind. Um, Praying harder, reading your Bible more, it, it just doesn't fix it. Uh, there was a point in which decisions were made where they could have stopped, but then you come to a point where it's so ingrained in you. Um, I think the saying is, what fires together, wires together. And so now you have these neurological pathways in your brain that are automatic to you. You do them without thinking. And so when an addiction forms, Behavior modification is not going to fix it. You have to get to the root of the problem. You know, as we said earlier, uh, sexual addiction of any kind, really any kind of addiction, it's really not a whole lot of difference, uh, is really about the way you cope with life. Now, in today's context with the younger generation, a lot of them are getting addicted simply by exposure. But there's also, you know, we got a lot of broken homes. I mean, I like to make the analogy of, you know, you go buy a piece of furniture at Walmart or something, as long as you don't look at the underneath side of the desk, it looks pretty good. 
But once you start chipping off that pretty veneer on the outside, you start to see that ugly press board, and God forbid you spill some water on it, it really swells up, and then you just have stuff flaking everywhere. We're all that press board underneath. We like to put on a pretty veneer, but everybody's broken at some level. And if you're simply just trying to stop, it doesn't work. You have to put some, uh, you have to create a safe place where they can come and they can confess, and they can feel like they are not being shamed. Guilt says, I did something wrong, I messed up, let me move away from that. Shame says, there must be something wrong with me, and no one could love me, especially God. Ian, would you make a distinction between, I guess, if we were psychologists here, what we would pronounce as a legitimate addiction and something that has become... um, a, just a sinful habit. Like, and the reason I ask that is this, and I don't remember the exact details, and I hadn't thought about this before we started recording, but do you guys remember um, an illustration or an analogy that John Piper had given on the subject of pornography use and talking about resisting sin to the point of death and that idea of holding that line and your hands are bleeding, your hands are bleeding, and you, you hang on and you hang on for your, for your life. Is there a line somewhere where maybe some of these uh, people are listening and it still is within your power to stop. But if you do not, you're going to tip that scale over. You're going you're gonna to reach a tipping point where just, just saying, um, I agree with you, God, this is wrong. I confess this is sin. And I'm going to have some accountability partners to help me. And I'm going to share this with somebody. And I'm going to do my best to stop. Won't be sufficient. But maybe for them right now, it still is. Um, possibly if, you know, if you're just dealing with, uh, someone who has a lot of exposure, which is creating a habit. Um, but again, you got to remember, you know, the chemical cocktail that your brain is firing off when you have these moments of pleasure, you're wiring your brain and it doesn't take long to wire it to that image on the screen or, you know, that online chat person you're dealing with. And so if there is that line, it's very early on. And you need to you need to get rid of it as soon as possible. Ian, there is a there's a resource online that might be eye opening uh, for some people who are listening that might think, you know, I've been exposed, and you know, I'm, I guess statistically I might fall into one of those categories you mentioned. I look every now and then; it's no big deal to me. I mean, I can I can pick it up or put it down, whatever that sort of thing. How might they get a little bit better? objective assessment of where they where they really are. So I think what you're talking about is called the SAST test, the Sexual uh, Addiction Screening Test. Uh, there are several websites that have that. I'm sure we can put one on the, on the church website for people to go to. Now, if you go here, it's like a series of 40 or 50 questions, and they're real easy, yes or no. Um, you know, it's really just a click a button and move on. And it will score you. And as long as you're answering those questions objectively, you know, not how you want to score, Mm -hmm. but, you know, okay, let me really do this and see where I'm at. It's going to be pretty eye-opening. All right, let me put you on the spot here just a little bit because, you know, we're not treating this, you know, Ian, you shared a lot of kind of higher thoughts than most of us probably consider the the science of this. There's a science to this. Um, There's a spiritual side of this. There's a science to this. Well, we're... God made us as a unified whole. We can't separate the parts of who we are, mind and body and spirit. But um, this is also personal. So, Ian, tell us a little bit um, what you can share with us of some of your own personal journey 
and why this matters to you and why you want why you personally want to help other men. Right. Um, well, if you would have asked me this 10 years ago, I would have clammed up and said, no way. Um, but, you know, the Lord can take your brokenness and your sinfulness and heal you and then help use you to help others. And, you know, I was having lunch with Reagan Ferris the other day, and I was asking about pursuing some sort of layperson counseling. I was like, would I even make a good counselor? He's like, 75% of counselors out there, the good ones, have experienced some sort of trauma or addiction, and now they want to pay it forward. And so I went through this. Um, you know, I had some traumatic events in my childhood, um, some small, some big. Uh, nothing to do with how I was raised. These were, these were just circumstances. Uh, one was my paternal mother who was gunned down violently. Um, another was as simply as a, a kid on the playground in kindergarten calling me fat. And then a, um, a teacher who I very well respected basically say, well, he's not fat. He's big boned. Well, I may have been five, but I saw right through that comment. And if I show you a picture of me, I look like every other kid. That's the crazy part. And this is what the enemy does. He takes and inserts a lie into your life through some sort of trauma, and then you live with that lie as your truth. And so anytime life throws you something negative, well, you default to that lie, which you believe is true. And so, you know, being exposed to pornography at a very young age, and when I say young age, probably eight or nine, you know, it, it started out as someone had a, found their dad's stash under the bed and, you know, flipping through the channels at night after mom and dad went to bed. Um, any, any kind of exposure like that really stimulates a young man and you're just fixated on it and you go, hmm, this feels pretty good. So when these hurts from your past bubble up, that's where you look to go, okay, I need a good feeling. I need to pick me up here. Some people turn to pornography, some people, people turn to alcohol, drugs, and whatnot. And the problem with pornography is there's so much shame attached to it that it goes underground. You know, you mentioned that earlier, you know, not, not just guilt, but that feeling of shame. Um, I think sometimes in the church culture, because we're trying to do the right thing and we're, we're trying to teach people the right things to do, and we're, we're speaking as clearly as we possibly can on what's right and wrong, without sugarcoating that, I think unintentionally sometimes we are fueling that and driving people more underground with that. Do you, do you see that happening in some of the conversations you have or, or at least exacerbate a sense of shame because I'm in church and I'm gathered with these other guys and things. How can I admit or acknowledge that I've got a problem here? Absolutely. I, I personally think that's why the, the leadership um, or lack of leadership coming from our men is there. That's why it's there. There's a shame in there from these guys who are struggling. It's like, how can I go lead something when I can't even control my own life? And so there is a shame. And all that does is if we don't create a safe place where someone can come alongside them and say, hey, I love you for you. I accept you. Um, you made some mistakes in the past that brought you here, but you're caught in it. It's not necessarily your fault anymore, and we need to heal this so you can move on. We need to create that safe place for them so they can come in and they can feel welcome and start to learn their sense of self-worth and value found in Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about 
dads and spiritual leadership in their homes and, and taking responsibility as guardians of their home, teachers in their homes, leaders in their homes spiritually. And something you just said a minute ago, Ian, I want to just detour just for a second. You mentioned age of exposure for you, and I've had some conversations with some younger people that really has kind of been surprising to me on their age of exposure too. Charles, how does that affect, how does that affect the role and responsibility of a dad with his children to begin talking about these things so that your first understanding of what normal sexuality is, um, what God intended, what God made you to do, is not that but something else. Does this change the equation for when parents should be having those conversations with their children? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think, number one, it means that the dads have to take that seriously and and get past that hard conversation of having with especially with your boys um and i would say you need to be doing that in fifth sixth grade you know you don't need to wait until they're in junior high or or more when they're starting hearing it and coming back to you if they're hearing it and coming back to you you're you're late and they're probably already seeing it yeah so just hearing it and you know one thing i think is important with that is is that gives you the opportunity to start with the good stuff as in getting to talk about god's design for it and talk about even going back i remember you know, me doing this with my boys, it's, it's let's start talking about what God's design is for a man and a woman. And so you're not having to fight the, the negativity first. I think if you can get before it and show the positives in it and what they have to look forward to and those kind of things, I think that's a great thing, but you've got to do it before they already have those negative images in their brains. And Ian, your situation at home is a little bit different because you're a dad of two girls. So mm-hmm. what, what's the role of a dad in this subject matter with his girls? Well, you have to educate them um, that this is a prevalent issue out there and that many of the, the young men that they're going to come in contact with likely been exposed to this. But like we said earlier, it's not necessarily a, uh, a male issue anymore. You have these young girls sending Snapchat pictures of themselves naked yeah. to you know, boys and vice versa. So it is a two-way problem now. Uh, here's a statistic that really should blow your mind. 9% of pornography users are under the age of 12. That's, yeah, when you look at the sheer number, we, and we talked about the millions, 9% is a significant number. We're running up here on our time limit, and this is obviously a subject with a lot of implications and a lot of offshoots. So let's just spend a couple minutes, so stick with us. I want to spend just a couple minutes, Ian. Give us, give us some path forward that gives some hope. And if you would, talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing here at Calvary as just as really a, hopefully a rescue um, to really to really not just not just to speak to the issue, not just to address the issue, but to bring healing to this. So give us some thoughts on that. You know, my first word of advice is don't think you can do this alone. Healing takes place in the context of relationships. Um, like I say, when it comes to the surface, it's probably been going on for years, if not decades. You haven't fixed it yet. You're not going to. Don't think that you can. Um, So we want to put in place um, groups, leaders who understand it, who are trained in it, who give you a safe place to come and figure out why this is happening. Um, We want to make sure, and this is for women too, we want to make sure that anyone who is struggling with any kind of sexual addiction or sexual, um, what's the word I'm looking for? If you're outside of the marriage bed in any way, we want to give you a place to where you can come 
and really work on this because the Lord can redeem any sinful behavior and he can turn this around and you can kick the enemy in the teeth and turn around and help others, which is, uh, which is exactly what I'm, I'm doing today. And so coming up uh, in the short term, you know, if there is somebody out there who's struggling and this, this hits a nerve, um, by all means, I want you to come talk to me or email me. Um, we want to get you help. We want to get this ball rolling. Also, in the fall, uh, I believe on Wednesday nights, we're going to teach an open class. And this class is going to be geared more towards informative and preventative. Um, it would be an amazing class for fathers to bring their sons to. Uh, that, would give a, that would give both of them a place where they could understand what's going on and be in a, in a safe context where, you know, if something comes up they need to talk about, they can. And we were talking about this in our staff time, too, that this, is a, this would be a great tool for any of you men who are listening. Well, women, too. I mean, but this one's aimed at men, this particular class. But this would be a great tool for any of you men who are involved in discipling relationships. Um, when you're talking to other men and how you might be able to encourage them and point them in the right direction. Absolutely. I mean, if you've been discipling someone or any kind of for any kind of time, I bet you've come across this in some context. And so now we're, we're putting a tool out there for you guys to, uh, to be able to use, another tool in your toolbox. So be looking out for that. That's going to be coming in the fall. We'll be, we'll be announcing the full slate of open classes, um, and this is new. Charles, speak to that just real quick, and then I'm going to let you uh, send this out of here. But just what we're introducing on Wednesday nights, that new format of open classes, and this is one of those. Yeah, so starting in September, right after Labor Day, that Wednesday after Labor Day, we'll start a new quarter. They're quarters. They're 12-week-long uh, sessions, just like we've done on Sunday mornings where we've had open classes going on uh, at 8.30 like Life Group. We're also going to now do open classes on Wednesday nights at 6. So we'll meet down in the rock in the lobby area where the couple of tables are in the coffee area and the bookstore. Uh, we'll start there 545 or so when everybody just starts to gather. And then at 6 o'clock promptly, uh, we'll announce the classes, what rooms they're in, just like we do on Sunday mornings, and then head upstairs to the classes right above the rock. So uh, we're hoping that's what uh, Wednesday night will become for us, will be another opportunity for people to uh, choose. Are they going to do an open class? Uh, maybe they're doing life group. Maybe they're uh, doing their D group. Maybe they're helping with children, students. There's all kinds of opportunities there, but one other one that we want to offer is that open class format um, where a lot of us are going to be teaching some of the things we taught on Sundays that life group, life group members couldn't go to because their class was still on Sunday. You'll now have the opportunity to do those on Wednesday. So it'll be two different choices there for open classes uh, coming in the fall. And one of these classes will be uh, what Ian is talking about. Ian, appreciate you sharing and appreciate your passion for this. I know it's born out of um, your own experience, too, and how God healed you and, and things you've learned and how you've um, benefited from that and what you shared, passed on to other men. So uh, just want you to know, as you're, if you're listening to this, we want to be part of that solution with you. And Satan thrives on darkness and secrecy, and um, there's no healing in secrecy. So... We hope that this will be beneficial to you. You'll take some steps to move forward, and we want to help you do that. Well, yeah, one last closing statement there. If you are struggling with this and you're dealing with shame, I want you to know that nothing you can do, you cannot do anything to change the way that Jesus Christ loves you and his desire for you. Um, you have infinite worth and infinite value because he gave an infinite price for you. And so 
let's get to work on this and let's get you healed so you can love him the same. Amen. Charles, that reminds me so much of what we read from Richard Sibbs that our, our, our Savior is a far greater Savior than we are sinners. And there is more forgiveness in Christ than there is sin in us. So, as always, we're for God, for Dothan, for the world, for you. If we can minister to you in any way, you, you let us know. I'm Paul Thompson. Charles Uptain. Ian Whirl. Thanks. We'll talk to you again. Thank you.